because of their internal politics, I ended up basically being the lamb that was sent for the slaughter. And that really affected my career. I couldn't be seen to be a failure. And I didn't want my children and my family to have that. So my mindset is I needed to keep going. And it was easier to transition into criminality. They took all the risks, they did what they did, and I basically got commissions. But I don't think companies do enough to actually prevent insider threat. They know it goes on, and they don't want to admit that it goes on. Because the reputational damage of admitting that it's happened against them is actually sometimes worse than the actual financial loss itself. And when you know that, you can exploit that and use that to your own advantage. And I think that's the kind of issue, you know, I could have exploited them very, very heavily if I chose to do it. Welcome to this week's Cognitas Global Podcast. With me today, I have a gentleman called Scott Kidd. Now, Scott has a very diverse background, um, ranging from a particular thing that I know he's going to talk to you about in great depth, uh, through to diverse criminology, psychology, and uh, a finance background. He's currently studying for his PhD, uh, having already obtained an MA in criminology, and he works with organizations such as the Howard League for Penal Reform, academia, and various organizations, including the police, to do with uh, counter-fraud and education in relation to criminality, really. Scott, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Can I ask you, uh, what are you doing right now and where are you? Um, well, I'm currently um, in my office at the University of Lincoln. Um, I'm an associate lecturer and um, researcher, and I work in criminology and psychology within the university. We first met in London earlier on this year, Scott, at a fraud conference. We hadn't met before. Uh, you were a guest speaker, and uh, it particularly interested me because uh, I think it's fair to say that at some stage we both operated on different sides of the fence. We'll come to that. Uh, sure. We operate on the same side now. Uh, and I was particularly interested um, and really uh, captivated by the talk and the interview that, that took place regarding um, your life, really, um, some things that you had done, how you turned some of those issues around and, and what you're doing now. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Uh, just give us an idea who Scott Kidd is. I mean, where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school, university? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, well, I was actually born in um, Newcastle originally, so I was born and bred Geordie. Um, had a very, very strong um, Geordie accent. Um, it's fair to say that I probably didn't grow up in the nicest part of town. Um, so, you know, some of the roughest sort of council estates. Um, moved down to Leicester. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, moved to an even worse council estate than I came from. Um, so in terms of my sort of background, it was quite poor. Um Family life wasn't particularly great. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, quite abusive with it. My mum had various nervous breakdown one after the other. And um, I had a very sort of troubled school life, really, you know. Um, and I suppose, you know, in terms of my journey, you know, I kind of became very disillusioned in the system. And I felt like the system very much failed me. Um, and pretty much all the way through my school sort of journey, because I'd been sort of this that troubled kid that kind of acted out because of what was going on at home. Um, I was basically, you know, sort of punished it quite punitively. And in another sense, you know, um, you know, I was told I'd never be anything. I'd always be, you know, a failure. I would never amount to anything. And I suppose that kind of gave me the appetite to kind of um, make sure that I elevated myself away from where I grew up from. So I ended up sort of landing myself um, roles, initially quite junior roles in banking. 
And quite quickly, they saw promise within me. And I think it was at the, I sort of like I entered banking at the time where it was the kind of the you either sink or you swim. So they took people into much higher roles, and then they probably have the skill set for to see whether they'd actually you know sort of um you know be successful or not it's a bit like one of those sort of um you know the movies uh, where they're kind of like you know you have to spend all your money within that time frame or you know or everything's going to go you're going to lose everything and i think in that sort of sense of banking time they put me in these really high profile roles and i did very very well from it can i ask you in terms of the the bank you're working for i mean i by all means if you want to name them name them if not not uh, i think everything's a matter of record but uh, it, it, it was a high street bank or a, another type of bank? Um, it was high street bank initially. So I worked for Royal Bank of Scotland Group and I worked with them Lombard North Central. So I dealt with them high value loans and lending between anything from 10 to 100 million pound plus. So I was dealing with them quite high profile customers, um, very much in that kind of um, spending big, you know, company sort of credit cards and that kind of thing to entertain clients, bringing them in and then basically, you know, putting financial lending in place for all sorts of things from recovery strategies to building dams. You know, I kind of financed that, um, you know, without sort of getting into the too, too much of the particulars, I even financed certain royals and um, personal car fleets, you know, so it was that kind of, um, you know, sort of the high end client that I would, en- I would end up dealing with. So that's exposing you to high net worth Clients, uh, yep. offshore banking, mm-hmm. uh, a much broader financial market than perhaps uh, you know many people would be familiar with. Yeah, it's fair to say that your life took a particular turn for which you yes. subsequently paid uh, with a term of imprisonment. So let's just deal with that if we can. Maybe just just in in stages. Clearly, you had a lot of power and influence. Yeah, you know, high level of responsibility and decision-making authority in the bank and authorization uh, to, to make, um, you know, huge loans. What what went wrong? What happened? Um, well, I basically um, created a new um, strategy within the bank to merge two parts of the organization together. And my boss at the time decided to pass the work off as his own. And because of that, you know, he obviously received quite a lot of um, sort of internal kind of accolade and kind of like got put into a very, very senior position within the organization. They then realized that obviously he passed off my work. And because of that, they couldn't risk the reputational damage of him then losing that position for what he'd done. So I subsequently got put on gardening leave. So I got put on gardening leave and um, kind of almost got pushed out of the city at the time. And finally got a job in um, BNP Paribas, um, which is French bank, and looked at sort of Arville, um, PHH, sort of leasing solutions. And I basically saw that there was actually a hole within the leasing market. There was actually a missing product. And with my kind of knowledge of the system, basically created my own leasing company. And because I knew how high-level lending worked – because I knew what the sort of the banking sort of strategies were, what they would be looking for. I fundamentally created everything I needed to get the loans and the lending to set my leasing company up and grow uh, a company over the course of 18 months to a 5,000 car fleet from nothing um, using the bank's money. So it was and this my- is whilst... Whilst you're employed for the bank? Whilst I was employed, yes. I actually set it up in my father's name because I was on a non-compete clause. So um, I set set that kind of all up running alongside and then eventually sort of then migrated away from obviously working and then into the company once it was more established. So I'm assuming what you were doing was against all rules in the bank at that time or not? 
It was in terms of I wasn't allowed to obviously get lending and t- lending from Royal Bank of Scotland Group or any of the associated partners because I had a unique insight, but because it wasn't going through my name, it, they didn't technically know about it. And I amassed, um, you know, large sort of credit facilities and banking facilities, et cetera, in order to actually, you know, support the company to grow. And look, we're not going to glamorize any aspects of this. I mean, there are, I think the story that takes you offshore and to various places and all yeah. sorts of assets and that, but, and clearly there were some parties that, that suffered financially in this. Yes. Uh, but in context of what we're going to be talking about generally, and that's insider threat and fraud, um, you you were the you became the classic insider threat, I guess, uh, because of that incident in Royal Bank of Scotland. Your motivation was, uh, I guess, well, you tell me how you felt because this is this is critical for people to understand, you know, about the insider threat. Yeah, um, well, the knowledge I had, I could have gone through any other funding partner. Could have gone to you know Halifax Bank Scotland, which I ended up going through at the end of it, and various other people. Sort of to really boil it down, I felt like sort of Royal Bank of Scotland and Sense had failed me because I had a really successful career with them, and because of their internal politics, I ended up basically being the like the lamb that was sent for the slaughter, and that really affected my career. So my motivation when I had this sort of you know the opportunity to get lending was I thought well instead of going to another provider. I want them to fund my business. I want them to be the ones that actually help me make a success of myself because of what they'd done to me. I suppose you could say it was kind of like a form of revenge in some ways. So, yes, that's the kind of sort of mindset that I was in when I decided to go for them and for the lending, really. So uh, there was no criminality per se at Royal Bank of Scotland. No, uh, I, t- no I assume. No um, you've set up the company in your father's name, uh, at uh, BNP Paribas, uh, and you're starting to leverage a lot of lending from Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah. Uh, when, when did it when did it cross the line into criminality at that stage? And, and look, we're not trying to glamorise any of this. Yeah. Uh, we're going we're going to come on to how you paid and how you turned all of this around. Um, but what happened? When did it become criminal? Well, basically, what happened was um, we were actually doing really well. We were buying a lot of vehicles, you know, two, three hundred vehicles at a time, and we were rapidly growing as a company. Um, and then the residual value market fell out of used vehicles. So when that happened, we were basically, our asset book basically lost millions of pounds pretty much overnight. Um, Lex vehicle leasing went bust at the time. Um, and in a sense, because I'd been kind of told that I'd always be a failure, I couldn't allow that company to fail. And because of the size of sort of transactions we were doing, we were on monthly VAT reclaims. And we'd already submitted a load of um, invoices for 200 vehicles. We cancelled the order because of what had happened to the residual values in the market, but the invoices had already been processed and I received a very, very large VAT repayment for vehicles that I hadn't purchased. So in the initial sort of phase, it was like, okay, I'll borrow that money temporarily just to keep the company going because I had employees and all those sorts of things and I would pay it back. But then as we got to the sort of the next round, obviously we needed more funding because our losses were so sort of huge. Um, that I then decided at that point, okay, I'm going to submit a fake VAT reclaim, you know, because I've got a load of these invoices. So I, I placed an order, cancelled it, had all the genuine invoices, put them through, and they got paid out on. 
But my intention initially was always to pay it back. But then it got to a point where it was so big and there'd been so much fraud that had gone through that there's no way I could pay it back. So I tried to then diversify into other sort of businesses and markets and set up, um, you know, uh, other companies to try and kind of like weather the storm to try and sort of keep everything kind of going and ticking over. You know, unfortunately, you get to that kind of precipice where things are unsalvageable. Um, so that kind of was the path I kind of went down. But then because I was involved with all these things and because I was kind of, I grew up on a council estate, I knew a lot of people that were involved in organized crime and they were friends of mine, but previously I hadn't been involved with any sort of criminality. And I started talking about what I was doing and they were like, can you help us set these things up? And I think that's where it kind of spiraled and moved on really, moving over to Marbella, and then when I was in Marbella, getting involved with a lot of other sort of organizations and a lot of other activities, just purely because the knowledge that I had and people would come to like, how do I do this? And the knowledge I had was valuable. It, had, it was a commodity. And I, in a sense, it became a bit of a consultant to some people. So if we were to, to summarize this then, um, what we're talking about is VAT fraud. Yeah. Uh, what what was the the total extent of the VAT fraud? If we were just to summarise, they uh, that. They, pro- they could prove that I'd taken one point four million pounds personally um, across an organisation. Um, they did sort of intimate that it was twenty eight million pounds, although they couldn't prove it. Um, then they dropped it to eight and a half, but they couldn't prove it, and they basically settled on one point four, which is where we kind of said, okay, that's in the point where we can actually agree on uh, in terms of sums of money. Uh, and and if I can ask you, um, at, at the first stage, it became, well, did, and where did the Royal Bank of Scotland feature in terms of their losses? Did they lose money out of this in the end? Or, um, or yes, they did because I, I kind of realised that you know that the knowledge I had for relationships meant I could exploit systems and operations and processes that existed. Um, so I started to diversify a little bit away from fraud and then set up sort of more kind of large sort of scale confidence scams. So, for example, I would set up a new company, get a set of firm financials, put them through, let's say, PricewaterhouseCoopers and manipulate the relationship with PricewaterhouseCoopers to actually almost endorse these these set of projected financials, although almost as if they were real. And because I knew what the process would be for the actual process, I ended up getting them confirming that these financials were, were being prepared by them. And people took that as an audit position. So then I could then go to a bank and say, right, I need a million pound overdraft. And they'd give me one on the basis of these projections because everyone bought into the brand of PwC. I knew the process with PwC because of how their relationships worked. So I had that kind of knowledge from how I sort of, from the banking side of things that I was then able to exploit as well. So it kind of, you know, it, it was sort of, lots of different things that kind of sort of all interplayed that allowed me to do what I did. And, and if I can ask you again, coming back to this sort of insider threat. So, you know, initially we see that we, we, we understand the motivation against RBS. Um, you're then in a situation where it's almost, you know, uh, you're, you're, I'm assuming when you were running the business, there was no, in essence, criminality around the way that you ran the leasing business. Would that be correct? No, not at all. Not, at all. not, not to start with. It was only when yeah. the business started to fail. So then you're robbing Peter to pay Paul by setting up all these different companies. And there comes a stage yeah. when you realize that you're just not going to recover the situation. Absolutely. Um, when did that situation go from you trying to 
save a business by whatever means it was you doing and i would imagine there was that was bleeding into areas of criminality and fraud yeah. when did it come to you moving right across to uh you know full on fraud or other crime financial related crime and, and why did that transition take place why did you just not stop accept the losses why did you feel that you needed to move on to that other side the darker side it becomes more sort of psychological to be honest with you i couldn't be seen to be a failure i had to kind of maintain this image that i was doing well um and and i think that kind of came from a lot of things obviously from my childhood from school um growing up the way i did and i didn't want my children and my family to have that i didn't want them to be exposed to what i'd been exposed to in terms of financial hardships to abuse and all those sorts of things so my kind of sort of mindset is I needed to keep going and I needed to, you know, have achieved that. And when the businesses went, that formal structure went. So I then had to apply my knowledge to still have that lifestyle and earn that level of money in order to feel that I was able to actually not allow my family to sort of grow up where I grew up in a sense or experience what I experienced. So it came became at that point more of a survival and it was easier to transition into criminality because they paid well, it was very quick. They took all the risk. They did what they did, and I basically got commissions. If you, you know, and a commission could be the fact that you know um, the keys get dropped off for a you know a one million pound yacht, for argument's sake, and that would turn up in the port with my name on the papers, and that so and that's what they kind of did, um, and that's the kind of the process that it went through. I would like to say that I have no yachts anymore, and I live sure. a very kind of modest lifestyle these days. Well, we'll come to that, and uh, you know there will be people that will listen to this with different views. But I, 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 it's important that the whole podcast is listened to, so that people can form a you know an overall view of, of you know, I guess your journey. Um, one question: What is it that prevented the banks from identifying what was going on at this time? You know, I mean, you'd found a gaps in the system you're exploiting those gaps what was it within the organization that didn't enable them to properly deal with that insider threat or what was going on in general terms you know i don't want to criticize the individual yeah. fraud departments within banks but just generally because when you're actually sort of dealing with the wealth side of things when you're in wealth banking corporate banking and all those sorts of things which is what my organizations were set up to be you're, you're dealing with that personal relationship and your gatekeeper that person who sort of manages that relationship also earns commissions, also earns status within their role from the success that they have with their clients. And when you know that, and then you know what they're sort of they're governed by and what they need to achieve and all the rest of it, you can exploit that and use that to your own advantage. And I think that's the kind of issue, you know, when you've got wealth, you expect a, a certain level of service. And if you don't get the service, you'll go to someone who'll give you that service. But with that service comes a bit of a trade-off in terms of, you know, if you're there to exploit, then you yeah. can exploit with that knowledge. Yeah, and that's a perpetual weakness in all uh, anti-money laundering systems and regulated sector, isn't it, really right across, you know, when you look at corruption and lawyers and facilitators and enablers and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about where it ended up for you, what it cost mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, what what – penalties are involved so you you get captured what what where was the downfall what come to the end of your uh your run uh how did you get captured 
Um, well, it all kind of started to unfold. Um, someone that worked for my organization um, started to try and set their own thing up um, and they got caught. And when they got caught, they basically said to the police, you know, you don't want to be looking at me. You want to be looking at um, Scott. They went Queen's evidence against me. I was actually overseas at this point, so they didn't come over to find me. But when I came back into the UK, um, they arrested me um, for a minor charge. And that charge obviously then ran. I got a small sentence at that point of 13 months. Um, but what that did is it gave me bad character. And the day that that actual sentence expired, they then served me with the big case. And I was looking at between nine to 12 years for that. I was on bail. I got a notification from a friend I had in the police that they were going to rescind my bail. So I decided to um, go um, on a two-year holiday over to Northern Cyprus. And um, it got to the point where I just couldn't keep doing it anymore because, you know, I had um, I just sort of had remarried at this point. I had a, 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 young, a young son and it just wasn't, you know, a life on the run, you know, in Northern Cyprus is not the best way. They had me under surveillance whilst I was in Northern Cyprus the whole time. Um, but they couldn't do anything because there's no powers there because, you know, Northern Cyprus is an annexed country, you know, it's annexed from Turkey. So technically it doesn't exist. Well, so, it's interesting you say that, if I could may interrupt. When was yeah. it that you were over there? And I, I think I've mentioned this to you previously. Yes, um, I was over there in 2011. Yeah, um, ironically, I was working uh, in Northern Cyprus for two years on behalf of the EU yeah. on a freedom of movement of capital project, which essentially was uh, helping them build up their anti-money laundering regime. So whilst yes. I was over there doing that, you're in fact running running around, being followed around by people, that, you know, I mean, and, and what they were doing in relation to you was certainly not within my uh, remit or purview. I was there as a consultant helping them yeah. on a sort of policy level and training level. So you come back, you get captured. Um, tactically, you could argue they play a blinder uh, in terms yeah. of the timing of what happened to you. Um, and perhaps some people would say no less than you deserve, of course. Well, I, uh, I did what I did, um, so... Sure. Uh, but then, uh, so what were the final charges in the sentence that you ended up and when you got that, Scott? In total, with everything all done and dusted, um, I served, I was basically given 11 and a half years um, with my guilty discount taken off. So you could say that was close to 18 to 19 years. And um, I ended up serving five and a half years in custody of that in total. And I assume there was a confiscation order in relation to your assets as well. Yeah. Yeah, there was indeed. Yeah, so that's all been sort of done and settled, and everything's gone. So, basically, and how much? If if I can ask, how much was the confiscation order made against you? That's that's uh, a determination of value of your assets, and then yes. uh, or, and and your your benefit from crime, and then um, there is a obviously a calculation as to how much is taken away in terms of the assets that you do have remaining. What what was that in the end? If I um, and and all in all, um, twenty eight million was taken from me um and i was left i still have a hundred thousand that's outstanding uh, so you're left with nothing uh yeah. you're in prison um at that stage you've got a family you mentioned a family what absolutely what, yes uh, just what was the family situation then um well that we um, ended up losing the house um lost all our cars we lost pretty much everything that we had 
and um, you know businesses at that point as well, which we, you know we would restarted up and all sorts of things. So pretty much everything we had was gone. So my wife had to basically start up again. We I wanted to move away from you know any sort of former connections that I had so we moved from Leicester where we ended up being based at that point and um, when I came back to um, moving to Lincolnshire which is where we currently reside now. And what turned it around you're in prison for five and a half years uh, plenty of time to think um, uh, which you clearly did because uh, you decided then to take a path during that time and perhaps you could just describe that that process yeah. for me. Um, well, I was actually trained to become a psychotherapist and I did an advanced counseling psychotherapy course. And part of my actual sort of reflective learning is I actually kind of ended up counseling myself and ended up dealing with all my historic trauma from my past and looked at things very rationally as opposed to kind of taking that irrational viewpoint that I had taken previously. I rationalized things and I saw obviously the impacts and harms that I had on my family as well, my wife, my son. And um, my two older boys from my ex-wife, you know, they, you know, they really had a massive, had a massive impact on everybody that was connected to me. And I think the time that they did was harder. So taking that into consideration on one hand, but then taking into consideration that I actually dealt with the reasons why I offended. And I often think, why don't, you know, when you're actually in custody, why don't they actually do this work? Because in that five and a half years, there was no restorative justice. There was no rehabilitation. It was just basically warehousing exercise. So in that sense of the sense of the world, you know, I actually did my own, ended up carrying out my own rehabilitation by trying to actually sort of find a new path and find a new route um, away from sort of criminality. And then that kind of sort of, you know, when I was released, I had a completely different viewpoint on life and a different direction of where I wanted to go. I saw a lot of the inequalities that existed within the system. I saw a lot of the failings on both sides and in terms of how prisoners are staffed, but then how the system fails prison staff as well. You know, um, and, and I think this is that's the thing that to take into consideration. It's not about, oh, that poor prisoner. It's actually the poor people that are actually in that, whether you're on one side of the fence or the other side of the fence. And I think it's about kind of like acknowledging that as well. And from that, I decided to, you know, sort of, get myself the skills that I knew I would need in order to actually make the difference and make the change that I want to make. Um, you know, I want to tackle inequalities. I don't want children entering the justice system. I want to find more diversionary ways of things being dealt with. I want, you know, for there to be equality for people so that they can have those opportunities so they can reintegrate into society. But ultimately, if I can actually stop people actually getting into custody and committing criminality, then that's where I'll actually sort of focus my research as well. So that's why I can, I'm kind of involved in lots of different sort of um, projects and research specialities that kind of look to address different things. Well, I think, you know, if ever there's a case of rehabilitation, then, then certainly, you know, it's fair to say that it truly applies to you. Um you know, we met in an anti-fraud uh, environment at that conference, yeah. but I know you do a lot of work with not just the uh, prison uh, penal reform groups, but also the police uh, and yes. around fraud stuff uh, and youngsters. So perhaps you can just give uh, the listeners a flavour for some of the stuff that you've been doing and how you've been working to try and uh, assist police and other organisations. Yeah, um, I work with the actual, um, I've worked with Lincolnshire Police as sort of education department, so how they sort of educate young people and um, get away from things like knife crime and those sorts of things. 
Um, I've looked at a problem in one of our coastal towns in terms of the high levels of public violence that exists and what are the causal factors of that. And I've actually done it from a practitioner's point of view. So I've actually interviewed youth workers and police from all different types of roles, um, people that work in sort of drugs and all that kind of stuff and rehabilitation and actually looked at, you know, to see what are what's causing those phenomenons. Um, I look, um, I work as well in terms of assessing things like the police's summertime policing strategy, see if that's worked. And that's there's a lot of sort of focus against things like violence against women in terms of new approaches that they've taken to reduce that. And then I also um, look at making um, higher education um, institutions inclusive. So my sort of PhD research is very much around how do you make sort of um, higher education institutions inclusive that people with criminal justice experience and that have got those criminal records. So they have the same opportunity to transform like the contemporary students. So a lot of my work is kind of split in lots of different areas, really from accessibility, inclusion, and, um, you know, sort of, um, so people aren't discriminated against, but then I also look in terms of violence and how to reduce that and how to reduce criminality. On the fraud space, I kind of provide inside um, sort of, knowledge in terms of what how I exploited systems with various policing organizations and if there has particular sort of complex cases um that they don't necessarily understand I'll actually work with them to actually explain what's going on from you know from a from a professional point of view and I think that's the important thing what I've managed to sort of you know, there's always this kind of thing about the kind of like the them and us that exists, you know, in terms of obviously from kind of um people sort of who sort of manage sort of or deal with justice and the people that have actually offended. What I've tried to do with my work and what's sort of developed over time is this collaborative approach where I actually work alongside as a colleague to actually achieve the same goals. They've got their specialist knowledge in terms of investigation. I've got my specialist knowledge in terms of understanding what it actually is. And I think that's the biggest thing with a lot of frauds. You know, organizations don't necessarily know what the fraud is or how it's actually being done or how it's actually then been siphoned or moved around. But if you've actually worked in those circles, you know that. So you can actually become an asset and a tool to them. And that really just brings me on to the last bit before we wrap this up. Uh, as you know, we do a lot of crisis management stuff. We do a lot of training in the criminal justice sector globally, uh, training police officers, customs, prosecutors, judges, tax, all sorts of people. Um and uh, people from the regulated sector as well, central banks. But we also do a lot of crisis management stuff where uh, we incorporate uh, insider threat scenarios in relation to you know risk management and, and maps against crisis management plans. But I think what I see nowadays is uh, with technology, digitalization, all the cybersecurity stuff, the insider threat potentially has, uh, you know, could do a lot more damage than perhaps some of the activity that you were involved in previously. I mean, how do you view the whole thing now in terms of the corporate attitude towards or the cultural change towards managing this or dealing this, dealing with it or identifying it even? In my sort of opinion, I said I don't think sort of companies do enough to actually present and like prevent insider threat. And I think they kind of like they kind of seem to operate in a state of denial. Um, they know it goes on and they don't want to admit that it goes on. Yeah. And because of that, you know, that allows individuals who are on their inside to do what they do and get away with it without the consequences necessarily that someone else in society would get from doing the same thing. Because for them, 
the reputational damage of admitting that it's happened against them is actually sometimes worse than the actual financial loss itself. Um, and I think that if you were wanting to be savvy, especially in the positions that I was within the banking um, side of things, I could have exploited them very, very heavily if I chose to go to do it. And all the check and processes and facilities that are in place, they're bypassed for certain people. They're bypassed for certain individuals who have got wealth. And because of that, I think it really exposes things massively. Um, So, yeah, I think companies are very much in denial and I don't think they do anywhere near enough to address it. Um, But then again, I think, when you look at sort of the fraud market sort of um, globally, I don't think the government does enough to address it. I don't think the police do enough to address it. When you look at what's actually invested in something which actually has the highest potential sort of risk currently to national security, but there doesn't seem to be the appetite to address it. And whether that be the fact that they don't have the knowledge or whatever, I don't know. Well, I think a lot of victims of fraud nowadays would concur with that. Uh, but I do know personally people that are working within government uh, to try and really change that around yes. and other organizations to really change that around. Uh, resourcing is always a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you, you'll know some of those organizations I'm talking about, but um, the will is there, uh, but we've got, we've got to turn it around. Uh, there's no question about it. Yeah, and, and also to be fair, you know, uh, fraud on the international scene is not really recognized as fraud per se, you know, for years yeah. people have been fixated about money laundering, but really forgetting what, just comes before that money laundering and that's a predicate offense uh and of fraud so that's something else that we're trying to tackle in work that we do scott it's been a great pleasure to speak to you today i i know that it's been a an unusual journey that you've been on um i congratulate you on the work that you're doing now um i hope people have listened to this and taken a view that there is the possibility and opportunity and people do rehabilitate themselves. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's, it's been uh, really interesting for me. And thank you um, for perhaps educating some of our listeners that are unfamiliar with some of the, the issues that go on in a broader sense of what motivates people to commit crime. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Thank you.